Welcome to From Startup to Growing Up, the podcast. My name is Alyssa Cohn. I'm an executive coach, an angel investor, and the author of From Startup to Grown Up. Each week, I talk to founders, creators, advisors, investors, and builders of all kinds about their insights and experiences in going from startup to grown up. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Nick Sonnenberg to the podcast. Nick is the founder and CEO of Leverage, a company which shapes every business into an optimal organization through the most efficient use of talent, technology, processes, and systems. Nick is also the author of a new book called Come Up for Air, How Teams Can Leverage Systems and Tools to Stop Drowning in Work. In this discussion, we cover so much ground. We start with how Nick became an entrepreneur after a successful career in high-frequency trading. We talked about Nick's experiences bootstrapping his business, his thoughts on risk and how to build confidence, and his very dramatic breakup with his co-founder and his lessons learned from that. We also cover loads of very practical tips for how you can make your business more efficient, how to hire, how to give feedback, how to delegate, and a ton of other stuff to help you save time every day and every week. This is a rich, honest, and practical conversation, and you're going to love it and want to take notes. So please enjoy this incredible conversation with Nick Sonnenberg, founder of Leverage and author of Come Up for Air. Nick, welcome to the show. It's so great to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to have you, and I am so excited what we're going to talk about today. But first, I just want to give you everybody a sense of like, who are you and what's Leverage? So who I am, I mean, that's a complicated question. But <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I identify as an entrepreneur. <laughs> I identify as an ex-high-frequency trader and financial engineer. Um, and I run, I run a company called Leverage, and we help companies and teams be more efficient. And we go into companies and, and find where there's inefficiencies, where they could be collaborating better and leverage technology in smarter ways. And then we'll do a transformation to... Ultimately, the goal is to try to get give each employee back an extra business day a week just from being unproductive and, and going on scavenger hunts for information that they don't need to have to be in that situation. There's so much to unpack there, but I want to just emphasize, give everybody back one day a week. That's like a, that's an important, it's like an important thing. And just even conceptually, it's so nice for businesses to think that they can even do that. I, I mean, in some cases it's even more, oh, I also identify as an author. We'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. Well, but I want to maybe start about leverage because you have this genesis of leverage as being this efficiency company or company that promotes efficiency, but yeah. it didn't start that way. No. So Tell us the story of Leverage. Well, we we started back in 2015, and we had this wild success. We bootstrapped. We grew to seven figures in the first year, um, got to 150 people on the team. And but what was the business? Back then, it was a freelancer marketplace. But yeah. I was always – I was just coming out of being a high-frequency trader. I, I'm good with systems. And one day, I was having um, dinner with my now ex-business partner, and – um, we were brainstorming. It was the day Zertual, which was a big virtual assistant company. They went under, and we were brainstorming. Well, why do they go under? And we were both geeks about efficiency. Like we literally, we I, you know, I geek out. I get obsessed. How do I save a second? Because as a high frequency trader, I'm looking at like nanoseconds and microseconds, and automation. So. Uh, by the end of that, by the end of that dinner, <laughs> came up with this business model where it's like, hey, this is actually pretty good. There's no freelancer marketplace doing this. Why don't you go out and get five clients? I'll build a backend with some off the tool shelves, and um, 
we can launch in, in uh, I'll do that tomorrow. And we can launch the day after. And we, we did. And, wow. and, um, we, we gave a talk at a conference and we, we, we closed a big percentage of the room. And before we knew it, we actually had a decent amount of revenue. Now, on the to the outside, we had this wild success. You know, it's not not many people bootstrapped to seven figures in the first year, but we did so many wrong things. We were optimizing for, we we just cared about growth. We were growing at twenty percent a month, um, new clients in, and we we got to a point where where Alyssa, we were too big. We were too big for our own good. We we didn't have the infrastructure and the foundation to to sustain. Wait, let me interrupt you. So, what does that really mean? Because I think that everybody wants grow, 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 but like, what does it mean that your infrastructure I mean, wasn't pre- working? Well, premature scaling can kill a business. You know, like you need you need to have certain processes and foundations in place to be able to support you know that growth. It's like if you go to the gym and you try to go and bench press five hundred pounds and you haven't been working out, like you're gonna probably hurt yourself. Yeah. And, you know, it's the same same kind of thing here. So we were we were uh, we got to a point like where we didn't have the systems and processes to support the volume of team and clients that we had. You know, and we were growing at that that fast rate, but under the hood, there were all these problems, mm-hmm. right? So 20% new clients in, but we were losing 15% a month, right? So net, it was 5%, right? right? Um, you know, we were grow, grow, grow. So we took on like three quarters of a million dollars of debt and we were actually losing money. We were unprofitable. So yeah, like you can, it, you can, you can shape whatever story you want. Like you tell people seven figures and 150 people, that's impressive and it's not easy, but it wasn't you know, all, all easy and all perfect. Right. right? And also it wasn't, it wasn't working fundamentally as a business. No, um, there's a lot of problems. Another thing that was a a problem was we didn't have an org chart. My partner was the, the face of the business and, you know, he was in charge of people. So team and clients, and he was giving talks and people knew him. I was the, you know, my background's in financial engineering. I like to build systems. And, and so I was behind the scenes, like, and so, Let's fast forward so that we started in 2015. In 2017, we're having coffee one day at a co-working space, and he taps me on the shoulder. And it was nice because we, we it was a remote company. You don't always get to work together. And he tells me he's leaving. And he's not leaving in two weeks. He's not leaving in two days. He's leaving in two minutes. Wow. Right? And my palms are sweating. I'm like, holy crap, like, we're going to go bankrupt because... We had all this growth, but a lot of it was because, you know, he was the face of, of these things and people didn't even know who I was. So he's leaving. I've got 150 people. I think like four knew who I was, like literally. Of like, the employees. Of, yeah. Yeah. Um, to the point where like we would do these, um, we had this bot called Donut that would randomly match you. And people would ask me, like, how long I've been with the company. <laughs> clients didn't know who I was. And so before you know it, the 20% went to zero and uh, of growth, and I'm left with 15% churn. So in a, in a, in a three-month period, we lose over 40% of our clients. Wow, that's incredible. I lose team members left and right. Bank accounts are frozen. I'm cashing out 401ks. My dad ta- is taking a, a second on the house to loan it to, to me to, to make payroll. I mean, it was a mess. And that most sounds people, like a mess. Yeah, and this is like, you know, this is my 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 journey. And so I had I had two options. I could either bankrupt the company or try to turn it around. And I tried to turn it around. I right, well let me jump in for one second. So when your business partner told you, 
I'm just, I'm leaving. Did he give you a reason? Was it very sudden? Um, there was some buildup. I mean, I don't want to go into the specifics, but it wasn't like a complete, like, it was a shocker the way that, that it happened. I thought that we would be able to resolve. We were kind of in cup co-founder couples therapy. We hired a relationship. Uh, yes, I, so we were I going support through. that. Yes. So I really believe in coaching yes. and executive coaching. And, um, and, um, and so I thought I, I, I was a bit shocked, to be honest. Um, and so I could either bankrupt it or try to turn around. And, and at that point, I had a really clear idea of where we were being really inefficient. And 150 people is a lot in one year to start managing. So I need, knew I needed to simplify. I knew I was working crazy hours and like we were, there was, there was some huge inefficiencies. So I, I started to realize we need to fix how we're communicating as a team, it was super inefficient. There was messages all over the place. We need, we didn't have a great way of organizing work, our tasks, our projects. I couldn't hold people accountable. I didn't know who was working on what. And then I knew that we needed to um, standardize and, and structure our knowledge, our intellectual property, our processes, our SOPs, which I actually had done a pretty good job of. Had I not, when, when my ex-partner left, we probably would have not been able to survive if I hadn't been documenting. So I started realizing that. And I went on this journey, and it took years to to, to clean up. Um, but you know, in that process, I was able to clean it up. I turned it around. We're a fraction of the size now, doing way more revenue, profit, etc. And in that journey, people started reaching out, asking me to help them with their operations. And so, what I started realizing was, is is this, the same kind of way that I turned my business around. You know, we worked with uh, massive companies like like Racket Benkisser or uh, Tony Robbins or Poopery or smaller companies like financial advisors. And it didn't matter. The interesting thing, it didn't matter their size or their industry. Everyone also benefited from optimizing those three buckets. And so um, that's now the core of the business because we, we realized there's this huge opportunity. Like there's all these tools like Slack and Asana and Notion and Coda and Process Street and Gmail and Outlook. And no one's ever been taught how to best use them and when to use them. And so there's this niche, but it's really impactful. And so now we're all in on trying to be the best in the world at making organizations more efficient and getting the most out of these tools. I love it. That is quite a journey. And I every time you talk about these tools, I know you light up, your face lights up. But just went back to, again, this, this sort of this dramatic moment where your business partner said he was going to leave. And then you were like working around the clock to fix it. Yeah. Why didn't you quit? I think I just had too high of a pain tolerance. There was a part, there was multiple things. One, I did see a path. I, I mean, if I'm being honest, I didn't realize how hard it would be. Um, you know, if, if I would have known, okay, it's going to take this much time and this much effort and this, like, I thought it was probably a one year thing or a nine month thing. Um, so that was one thing, but two, I think I'm ultra competitive and I didn't like, I didn't want to live the rest of my life with the story that that happened. Like the competitive guy in me, it's like, screw this. I'm going to show them. All these people think that I'm not going to be able to turn around. I'm going to show them. And I have a high pain tolerance. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how you did it and what you thought of it. How did you manage your stress during that period? Um, I mean, honestly, like coming from high frequency trading, like I'm pretty well trained in stress management. You know, like I was managing by mid twenties, billions and billions of dollars. um, And I had a lot of responsibility. And um, this was a different level of responsibility because I've 
I've got a, a team that's relying on me making smart decisions or else they're out of a job. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, one thing I always did prioritize was, was my health. So I, I could do better with sleep, but you know, pretty much five days a week, I'm like working out, working out in the morning. So I think you need to do that. I eat relatively healthy. I worked out. I think that that, I never fell into that trap of like drinking or not working out. And like, I do work crazy hours, but, but I do balance it and do some healthy activities. And I think that that's really critical. Yeah, that makes sense. And so now you're really focused on operational efficiency and to your point, leverage the name of the company and like giving companies leverage. And you have, you're still a bootstrapped company. Mm -hmm. Why have you chosen to stay bootstrapped? It's a good question. Um, well, well, now I think that the, the world is changing. I think it's harder to raise money, right? I, I think if I were to have raised money, I missed, I missed the good time to do it. For the moment. Yeah, I'm sure it'll come back. You know, I think that there's a lot of benefits to bootstrapping. I think that if I would have had a million dollars, you know, right when I started the company, I would have made a lot of wrong decisions. I would have had that breathing room but to, to, to fire bullets, but it would have been in the wrong direction because I was so early stage, I didn't really know. So I think it's a balance. I think looking back, I um, you know, probably would have had some less, less stress and a bit easier time, but I do think that constraints and not raising money and giving yourself a financial constraint forces you to really be lean and smart and kind of laser focused. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, not all companies, like there's certain companies that definitely have to raise money. There's some that, that don't, you know, now, especially like we're doing con- consulting and trainings, you know, it's, it's less of the type of business that you, we could benefit from it. Like we're going to be building software. And like, once we kind of get into that, we might, we might consider, but I think that, by be, I think not raising gave us a bit of a competitive advantage in some ways because it forced forced me to make super super tight decisions. Right. You know, I think another point you're bringing up is that some companies have to raise. If you're a heavy hardware company, you yeah. have no choice. You need capital, yeah, like, right, obviously. Like, I can, you're, right. you're not going to bootstrap this and you're building a wearable and an app. and Right. It can't right. be. But you have a company, you have a, a, a business which allows you to choose to bootstrap. And I had... Um, Gregory Gallant of Muckrack on mm-hmm. the show, and he talked about how, you know, what you're sort of saying, these choices that you have to make, you'd be much more laser focused when you do it. And also you have to learn the job yourself before you're able to hand it over to someone. Have you found that? Totally. I mean, pretty much at, like uh, most core processes in the company, I did, I developed the V1. I do it myself. Like I have this rule where if I do, if I do something more than once, how do I never have to do it again? So (laughs) I do it. I try to perfect it. I document it. I hand it off and like, it's kind of rinse and repeat. Yeah. Um, but I'm curious like what, how you would answer that question. You're, I'm sitting with the world's number one executive coach (laughs) and (laughs) you you. used to be a CFO. Yes. Right. So, so the companies that, that you're working with, are they a mix of bootstrapped and raised, or most of them have raised money? Most of them have raised money, yeah. And I, But I think your point, in general, okay, this is not, there are many, many, many exceptions, but in general, the point about having very constrained resources requires you to just think methodically and in a focused way before you spend money. And people who get millions and millions of dollars, what they do is they hire quickly and then they hire sloppily. Well, I think, I think hiring 
people over hire and people, I, I tell you this all the time, they hire to get more bandwidth, but usually hiring is the worst way to get more bandwidth. Not so it's the most expensive. Like not only do you have to pay someone to help with the recruiting process and the interviewing process, then you hire someone, you have to pay them a salary. Then there's an onboarding phase where they're adding no value and you're just trying to train them. I mean, it costs a crazy amount. And in the perfect world, you find the perfect person. Every person, it's still adding exponential complexity, every person you hire. Right. And so by constraining and saying, look, we're not hiring any more people, you've got to figure this out. It forces people to drop the lowest um, priority stuff on their plate, forces them to start being more efficient. And I, I can tell you, I, I see this in every single business I work with. There's 20 to 40% more you can, you can get out of each person. Yeah. And it's not even to get them to do more work. It, it, it reduces the stress and improves culture because then culture deteriorates in large part because you stop trusting people. And it's not that I don't trust you on an ethical stance. It's like, hey, um, I've asked Alyssa to do this th three different times and I'm not getting a response. Then I'm stressed out and I'm texting you, I'm emailing you, I'm sending you Slack. And it starts to break down relationships. And it's not because it's a bad person. It's because there's a bad system in a process. Totally. You know, this book I read uh, from Amazon, Working Backwards, the, this beautiful expression, which is mechanism solves what good intention doesn't solve or something like that. The yeah, idea that good intentions, right, are all very well and good, but you need to have mechanisms and processes in place. But back to this idea of hiring, I, I agree with you. In fact, I always say the first step in hiring is don't hire, right? Clarify what you need, right? Make sure that you're doing it right. But how do you decide when it is time to hire a new person? You know, I think I tried to assess, are there, how much more efficiency gain can I get across the team? What are the skill sets of the team? Are we missing a skill set? So is it a skill set that we're missing, or is it truly bandwidth that can't be obtained through efficiency gains? Yeah, but is there, does it someone that says to you, Nick, we have to hire someone, and then you have a conversation with them, or do you step back and think about it? Like, what's the actual, like, thinking process for you? Well, we, we've, <laughs> how much time do we have? This? <laughs> I can actually give you two hours of content on this yeah, one. Yeah, 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 you're deep in this. Go ahead. <laughs> give, us a, give us a couple of ideas here. You know, like, we're having conversations all the time. We have pretty robust ways that we're prioritizing projects and, and, and OKRs and, and, and work. And so, you know, if I start, you know, going through a list of things that I, I think we need to do and it's like, hey, I start getting pushback, then we start having th that pushback triggers their conversation, right? And if at the end of that conversation, it's like, okay, there really isn't an easy way to, f to squeeze this in for whatever reason, then we start thinking about hiring. But, you know, before hiring, I start thinking, how can I make each team member efficient? That could be tools. It also could be hiring, maybe, let's just say, I'm just making this up, say, um, we don't have the bandwidth. I'm a writer for, for Inc. We, and we say we want to pump out 10 articles a month and we just don't have bandwidth, right? So one, one knee-jerk reaction is we need to hire a writer to do these, right? Another is, hey, we have a great writer. Aiden mm -hmm. on my team is my ghostwriter. You, you've met Aiden. He's, he's awesome. Aiden, where are you spending your time? What can we, how can we free it up? Is there an inefficiency that a tool can provide? Is there anything you don't like doing 
that we could get off your plate somehow. So then you free up your time to do those. So it might be that we don't need to hire. It might be Aiden spending 10 hours a week on admin, and we actually need to hire an admin to free up that 10 hours for Aiden so Aiden can do it. So instead of hiring a writer that might be more expensive, we hire an admin that Aiden can leverage, and now Aiden has more bandwidth for yeah, it. Right? Yeah. So you have to really be clear. You know, and if you don't go through that exercise, you might be making the wrong hire and hiring more expensive resources than you need. Right. I think what you're talking about is rigor and just putting rigor in the brand, just really stepping back and just saying clearly, here's what we need. And then what I love you're doing is you're having this creative approach to like, yes, we need that, but maybe there's a different way we can get at it, well, which then brings out the creativity in people. Well, and the, the longer answer is we do this thing that I created called dynamic role optimization. And Here we yada, go. Yada, here's yada. the commercial. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. But basically what I I do is I, I, I try to break down like Lego blocks, every responsibility that people have and not everything that people do is all worth the same to the company. Mm -hmm. You know, when Aiden's writing an ink article, it might be, we have this thing at levels one to five, like level one is like pure admin stuff. Level five is like a CEO level thing. So maybe that's like a level three activity, but maybe Aiden's doing other things as level one activities. And maybe Aiden's a level three higher. So if he's doing a level one, there's a gap of two. So how do we minimize that gap and like Aiden only do things that are threes or fours yeah. and try to get any other activity off of his plate? Yeah. And we do that across all roles in the company. And this is how we demonstrate that Nick is in his own genius by describing <laughs> this. But let me talk about feedback for a second, because if I'm not mistaken, you have like some group processes that you've kind of created with your team. To people give each other feedback and for them to give you feedback. How much time do you want to spend on this? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what comes to I mind. I mean, I think that I'm curious to know how you are advising companies on feedback. I could tell you quickly how we do it. Like, we've done a few different things. Um, you know, we have like a, tip, like a very lightweight perform quarterly performance where people submit, you know, answering a handful of questions. So do I. And then we have a conversation. It's kind of casual. Um you know, sometimes we'll do, um, it matters if we're doing feedback on a person or feedback on a project or a process, mm -hmm. right? Because those fall different. What I'm picturing is that maybe, and I, I could be getting this wrong, but I thought you had a, a moment where people sat in a chair. Oh, with like the ritual descent stuff? Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that's not giving feedback on a on a person, that's that's an example of saying like feedback on a on a process. So sometimes if we finish an engagement or a project, we'll do a retrospective, yeah. right? Where it's like what went well, what didn't go well, what did we learn, right? And we, we document it and we capture it, right? Even if something goes wrong, it's an opportunity. You don't want to miss the gold in there and not document it so that in the future it doesn't happen again. Right. So there's always a feedback loop on a project or something, some error that happened. You really have to make sure that you invest the time to understand why and, and capture it. What you're referring to is one time like years ago we, we did, um, and we do variations of it, but we did this exercise where I asked people to come up with ideas that they thought would be smart for the company. And they wear a mask. We called it ritual descent. They wear a mask. They sit in a chair. Don't face us as a group. And um, they pitch some idea. If they have a minute to pitch. And then the judges, and it would be like a group of four judges, had 90 seconds to only say why it's a bad idea and just like completely crap on their idea. And you can't argue. You just have to sit there and listen. And then after that, you move to another group of four judges, and you do another 60-second pitch. 
but you've just heard four people only saying negative things. So between, you know, station one and two, you're able to understand where their objections were and, you know, fix them of, you know, and if, if at the end it's like, Hey, I actually agree with them. It's a bad idea. You can drop out. <laughs> yeah. But after four, four rounds of that, we had some really, really good ideas that stuck with the company. Because people would point out the flaws in the idea and people get a, feedback and, and get a chance to fix it for the next exactly. group and over and over. Yeah. And also it probably desensitizes you from well, difficult feedback well, one, like that. Look, it, yeah, you wear a mask to depersonalize it. I think that might have been a little bit exactly <laughs> overboard. <laughs> overboard. Yeah. But um, the f- the fact that no one f- no one was getting picked on the whole exercise. Hey guys, everyone is only allowed to give negative feedback. You know, so it's not like, hey, Liz, I love Jordi and Nick. Your idea is completely terrible. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love that. I think it's. I like the idea of having rituals and processes that really do help get at the truth, right? Yep. So either with personal feedback in terms of professional feedback or like ideas like you're talking about. How do you make sure that you get feedback from your team? Because it's really hard to tell the CEO the truth and you're the founder of the CEO. Let's be honest, the team doesn't want to tell you the truth. So how do you make sure you're getting feedback from your team? Mm. I think that I have a relationship with them where I push and I expect a lot and I, I have a high standard. But at the same time, I'll admit, I'll be the first to admit that I made a mistake and show vulnerability with it. So I try to create a space where I'm pointing out when I make a mistake. So I think that that, I try to help make that, give them a little bit more, um, more right to do it. Sometimes there's some people, look, like also someone that is just hired is not going to have the same kind of courage that someone that has been working with me for six years, right? So, um, you know, sometimes if someone pushes back, I might say, guys, what Aiden just did, like, I wish everyone did that, you know? (laughs) Yes, I think that's really good. So... I was just thinking I had Rahul Vora on the show. He's the founder and CEO of Superhuman. And he yep. was talking just like you just did about you got to hang out with people and build a relationship with them. And the newer people are not the ones who are going to tell you the truth. Yep. But you have to use the older people as an examples about how you are able to deal with the truth. And I'm asking for feedback all the time. And usually groups is harder, but I'll... I'll ask people like, "How do you think that was handled?" Right. You know, what, what, what? How are you feeling right now? But what? How do you? What? If have you ever gotten feedback that has like really been uncomfortable for you, or that you were really surprised you? And then how did you make changes that you need to make? Um, I would say like one time I got feedback that I thought was inappropriate because it was in front of a group, mm-hmm. and it was kind of um, challenging my authority a bit, mm-hmm. and whether. What I was saying was right or wrong. I thought giving feedback, especially I think to to anyone, whether you're, you know, an employee giving to the CEO or vice versa. I think it's not just what the feedback is, but it's the context and yeah. how you're giving it. Yeah. So are you giving it privately? Are you giving it in a group? Are you saying it in an aggressive way? Is it asynchronous on Slack or is it live? Like all these things are nuances to giving feedback. Yeah. And so, you know, one time I I got. A bit pissed, not because there was pushback or, or, or anything, but I think it was done 
One, I think feedback in general, especially if it's tough, shouldn't be done asynchronously. And it's something I talk about in the book. I'm a huge promoter of asynchronous, but mm-hmm. there's a time and place and mm-hmm. sensitive conversations. It's terrible. You know, hey, hey, Alyssa, um, <laughs> you really messed that one up. <laughs> you know, Let's in talk like about a group channel somewhere. Right, and just right. like, so, um, yeah, I, I, if anything, it's it's more not what the feedback is, but how the feedback is given that would that would. Uh, frustrate me. I see. But have you ever, have you gotten feedback from your team that still stung, even if it was delivered appropriately, it was a blind spot for you, and that it stung, and that you made changes as a result of it? Mm. Yeah, I mean, like, all the time uh, I get feedback from, from the team. Like, sometimes nothing too much. Like, I think that for the most part, I've got a good sense of things, but there has been times where I'm like, I didn't realize like what I said landed that way. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or someone say like, I feel like nothing is good enough because like y- you keep pointing out that like, this could have been better. This could have been better. And I'm, and you know, in the moment I'm just trying to problem solve. And so like when that's pointed out, it's like, okay, I could see how that yeah. is landing like that. I'm sorry. Like, yeah. that's not my intent. What What about you? Like, when you're working with companies, what have you seen to be good, good frameworks for giving feedback? Well, I think, um, first of all, continuous feedback, regular feedback, and not making it this, like, event where we're going to give you feedback. It's more just everyday feedback. The idea of pulling someone into a conference room and having a quick chat in the world of remote work, having a quick um, text, uh, you know, can we have a quick call, making it informal on a regular basis. What I think a big mistake happens is that managers, leaders will save it up to the performance review. You know, we'll have a conversation with one of the CEOs that I work with and he'll be like, oh yeah, I'm bought in. I'm going to give them that feedback, performance review. When's that? That'll be in six months. Okay, well, that's not a very effective way to give feedback. And that's also not a good way to train your team to give you feedback. And I I really think the leader, and to your point, like, you have to reinforce for people, that was good behavior. He just gave me that feedback. That was good behavior. And so I think if you go overboard to make it, to normalize it, that is a very helpful thing. Totally. I think also it's important... um, to clarify upfront expectations when people start with you. That's right? great. Yes. And I think that it's 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 related to this conversation of feedback cuz like if you have to give someone hey like this this isn't right, you know, was there an opportunity in the onboarding to have clarified expectations too? Right. So I think always like as a leader you should be thinking how did we get to this and what could have been changed to have avoided some scenario. So one thing that we've changed in our hiring process is I, I go through, how can you be a hero to me and what, what's going to drive me crazy? Oh, I love that. How can you be a hero to me and what's going to drive me crazy? And I go through scenarios. Like, if you do this, you're going to be a hero well, to me. Well, so tell us. This, tell us. Well, what, what, how can I be a hero to you? Well, if you're proactive, mm-hmm. right, and um, not just do exactly – like, if you don't agree with something that I say, like, I want you to push back, right? And I want you to understand kind of the greater reason why we're doing something – and suggest better ways, right? But I don't want to just, you know, do exactly do exactly this. Um, I want to trust that you're going to follow through with what you're saying, you know, and like show up on time. Basic things like show up on time on meetings. Like we're an efficiency company. You've got to be efficient if you're working with me. Like it's going to drive me crazy if you're not getting to inbox zero and you're not using the systems and tools right. That would be incongruent with with the brand. So there's just some like basic things. But I'm telling you this now. 
because it's going to be an issue if you don't. And I want to set you up for success and I don't want to have to give you bad feedback or this feedback right. in a month or in a week. Right. right. And I'm here to support. I'll give you as much training as you want. We've got world experts on the team. You have literally all the support possible, but I'm just telling you the people that haven't worked out in the past, these are some of the things that have happened and we're trying to avoid it happening with you. So good. So good. I love that in the Orbani Bar. I'm going to take that on myself. So you wrote a book, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. The book is called Come Up for Air. Yep. What's the subtitle? How Your Team Can Leverage Systems and Tools to Stop Drowning in Work. I love it. I love the title. What's it about? As if I didn't know. Let's hear what it's about. And then also, why did you write it? It's about juggling, actually. <laughs> it's just a complete... <laughs> That's right. Just, you know, just That's right. Um, well, I wrote it. It's it's about my framework uh, for operational efficiency. So it's come up for air. My framework is CPR, communicate, plan, and resource, you know, no pun intended, you know, resuscitate the company uh, and your team. I wrote it just because as I was, as we were consulting with, you know, literally like thousands of people, everyone had the same issues. So the content that, that we're providing in our consulting, I wanted to write a book about it, um, and it just lent itself. I think that especially right now we're, we're in a recession, like 20, like there's all this stuff, you know, tech is getting hammered right now. Um, budgets are getting cut. People, people, companies and teams need to be more efficient. Like they're going to, they're going to be uh, restrained for, for budgets. They're, they're going to need to get more out of their, more out of people with less team size. So how do you do it? Uh, you know, and I, I think that this framework is, you know, a critical piece to being able to achieve that. So I wanted to get it in as many hands as possible. Um, and I've been working, you know, we were in Mexico and, you know, you were working on your book, which was great. And congratulations on your success. Thank with, you. Thank you very from much. From startup to grown up. To grown up. And um, I was working on mine there too. That's right. Yeah. And, um, you know, excited. It's coming out February 7th uh, with HarperCollins. I'm excited about it too. And, and tell people, what are some of the key points that can go wrong in companies and why people are drowning in work? And well, what they can do about it. I think a lot of problems in companies come back to onboarding. So this conversation yes. that, like, that we just had, I think also something that's neglected in onboarding is like think about what you give to an, a new hire. You're giving them information about vacation days and health insurance and maybe core values, but not that many people give even that. You never say to people, hey, at company ABC, we use Slack, we use Gmail, we use Asana, we use this. This is, and this is how we use it. We've got these channels. You should probably join these. We've got these projects. You, you know, we use it for, the, we use it in this way. And it's kind of like a language, you know, imagine you get hired and you speak German and I speak French and, you know, hey, go and go and build some stuff together. Yeah. It's going to be hard. Yeah. So this stuff is like a language. So if you, uh, I think the first thing is you got to get people from the very beginning, speaking the same language, knowing the purpose of each of the critical uh, collaboration tools. And that's going to save so much time because within a couple weeks, they're already at full capacity on projects and it's hard to then fit the trainings in. So the more you can get people set up for success up front, the better. I love that. Um, I think that people are over hiring and not thinking about how can you get more out, right. get them more efficient. I think that companies have this scavenger hunt problem where talk about the scavenger hunt well the scavenger hunt is by not having a set framework of where information should live 
you know, sometimes I'll text you, sometimes I'll Slack you, sometimes it'll be an email. And before you know it, you're looking in 10 different places to find information. Yeah. And by the way, that's anxiety provoking. It's, it's not just, terrible. it's like, I can't, it's with a text. Oh, I can't find it in my email. Like, let yeah, me check it's, the time. That's very frustrating. It's pure waste. Yeah. It's like, no one likes the scavenger hunt. And, yeah. and, 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 and look, in your personal life, when you do your laundry, do you take things out of the dryer and just throw it all in one drawer? Or do you separate <laughs> your socks from your underwear, from your T-shirt? Well, don't ask me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> most, we, people. <laughs> most people. Most right. people. Right, right, right. You separate it not because it's the fastest way to be done with your laundry, but tomorrow or next week when you need to put an outfit together. Right. It's right there. It's, it's easier to find what you're looking for. Wait, so I want to talk about that. That is a very great example because it's absolutely true that a normal thing to do is to separate your different yeah. socks and you hang up your shirts and you put your shoes in the shoes. But people do not naturally treat Slack and email and text like that. It's the same and thing. And most people, all I would say all of my clients are drowning in work with, with this thing at the very source. Can you very quickly motivate people to get their acts together and to do the upfront, is upfront work, upfront work to kind of clarify their communication so that's, mechanism? That's the hardest part because everyone is drowning in work and they've It's built, also boring. It's not, well, I mean, well, to me, it's sexy. But. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. To most, it's not as fun as like talking about, hey, like we got a new sales strategy and we're going to close like an extra million dollars yeah. and everyone's super, super busy. And everyone, a lot of people think that they've got a, a, a system that really works. You know, like how many people I've talked to, um, I have, I have this great system for using email. Like I've got a 10,000 folders, but I know where everything is. <laughs> right. Um, so people have their bias that they have a good system. Um, people are busy um, and so it becomes hard. The change management's the hardest. So when we work with companies, we, we try to identify the quickest wins so that we can free up two to three hours almost. That's great. Almost immediately. So good. Right. And so once we do that, we've built trust. We've created a little bit. You, you, when people have no breathing room, it's really hard. So you've got to figure out a way. How do you get that little bit of breathing room? Because once I get an extra two or three hours a week of your time. Now we can have some fun now with now it's like, Hey, listen, I, I just gave you this. It, it was free. I want to just take an hour of that and I want to work on something else. And that's magically uh, convert those two to three hours to three to five hours. Right. And now we're playing with house chips. And once I do that now, you know, I don't maybe even need more than an hour, like maybe an hour, maybe sometimes give me two. And now let's make that five hours, eight hours. And it's kind of just like continuously reinvesting time, but it is a time commitment. It's an investment. It's like return on investment in finance. It's like return on time. Yeah. Here. It's like you do have to have some investment, but we help to identify the shortest path to get that return. And does your book talk about that? Like when if I when people buy your book, are they going to expect to be able to make those kinds of wins on their own? Yeah, I, the book does does talk about what are some typical quick wins. Everyone's different, but there's a lot of tricks and tactics. You know, a quick one we were talking about uh, the tool Loom before yeah. you met the CEO. You know, one quick win, and we talk about probably hundreds of these in the book is, you know, you could probably cut out 25% of every meeting and replace it with an asynchronous loom video. 
And here's the benefit. Like, say you have a 9 to 10 a.m. Wait, if people don't know what Loom is, Loom is a a tool that um, you click a button, and it can record your screen, your face, or both. And it's on the phone. It's on the computer. Um, You can also just... There's there's alternatives, but Loom is a fantastic tool. Um, So... You could take an hour meeting from 9 to 10, which might be the, the most valuable time slot of the whole week, right? Like you, you, you wake up at 6, you work out, you have a coffee. At 9 o'clock, your brain might be at the highest horsepower of the entire week, right? Because then you got 10 Zoom calls for the rest of the day and then every day past that. So that time slot, that one hour is worth more than an hour from six to seven on a Friday in the right. back of an Uber. Right. So even if you could free up 15 minutes of a nine to 10 meeting, because it's just someone giving you a report out and you could reallocate that, they could send you a loom video and you could watch it during dead time when you're in the back of an Uber, you could watch it at two X speed, you could rewind it. If everyone, that's only 15 minutes one time, but if that's a recurring meeting, right? And say there's four people on that call. Well, that's an hour of total bandwidth times 50 weeks, say. That's 50 hours right there that you just got back as a, as a team. Yeah. Now, there might be 20 of those calls right, right uh, uh, throughout the week. So that's a great little example. things like that are quick wins that you could do right now and think about that doesn't require rocket science or a whole bunch of other shifts. And there's like literally hundreds of these tricks. I love that. That sounds great. Why do you think it's a good idea for entrepreneurs to write books? <laughs> well, I think that there's a lot of different reasons to, to write a book. I don't know if it's it's a great idea for everyone because it's a lot of work. It's a lot I of mean, work, right? I mean, you know this. Like, yeah. I've, I've spent way too much time probably on this book. I wanted it to be perfect. I really wanted it to be a meaningful book. So I think you can write a book for impact. Like I want this to be part of legacy. Like I think that I'm hoping this becomes a foundational book, like how David Allen's getting things done was foundational for individual productivity. I want this to be on that level when people think about teams being productive. So there's a legacy aspect. There's you know, I hope it generates business. You mm-hmm. know, like I think that this is going to get the word out and people are going to read this book and get value out of it and then be like, hey, I wonder how this company could help me. Like what services or products do they offer? Yeah. So I think that there's going to be a legacy impact as well as I think it'll be, um, it'll elevate our brand and drive business. Yeah, very good. Um, I guess I'm so curious if I step back and think about you and your career. So you were a high frequencies trader. You were like doing all these glamorous things, making a lot of money. You gave it up to be an entrepreneur. You had this dramatic falling out with your business partner. And now you're running a successful company. You've been through so much. I'm just curious if you ever experience imposter syndrome. Yeah, at different phases. I mean, when I first came into this I think when I first started high frequency trading, I was like, I'm the dumbest person. Actually, I'll even take a step back. When I went to grad school, um, I went to Berkeley for for the master's in financial engineering. And during intros at Berkeley, you have to stand up and give like a 30 second on who you are. And I was at that point, I was the youngest that they ever took. The average age was 30 and I was like 20. So I had no work experience. And literally the guy before me worked at Caltech and had a PhD in nuclear physics and was working on like nuclear like laser beams or some some shit. I got up and I'm like, I'm Nick. And I like to play poker and chess. <laughs> right. and I'm sitting there like, why did they accept me into this? I'm like the dumbest person in this program. Yeah. Um, but I worked really hard and like ended up actually 
you know, doing really well there. And um, then the same thing happened when I was a high frequency trader. Like, it was crazy complicated. It took me like over a year to truly understand all the different aspects. And yeah, I remember the, my, my, my team helping me and I was like, will I ever get it like and be as smart? And I think like over time, I just built confidence because like in every scenario where I thought that, like I, I over, I, I, I overcame and ended up being a high performer in this space. And, you know, it, it just took time. So yeah, I think we all do, but I think you, you build confidence as you build wins and help, help solve that problem. Yeah. Actually, I always tell my clients and everybody I talk to to create a highlight reel, just like you're saying, you know, all these times that you overcame challenges, all these times where you were successful, and then you recognize that your luck is not going to run out. This is actually embedded in you and you're able to overcome challenges. I mean, had I not you know, had my experience with Berkeley, had my experience at high frequency trading, I probably wouldn't have had the confidence to stick when, when, when I had the business partner um, situation, we'll just call it a situation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I probably would have bankrupt if, if I, but, the, but those previous, you know, those previous um, situations built confidence where I was like, I got this. I know like I'll, I'll figure it out. Yeah. And so I think it's important to put yourself in the, in the hard position, hard situations and really challenge yourself. And like, otherwise you're not going to build that resilience and right. those stories to, to, you know, give you the confidence to, to push through. Right. It's like a muscle totally. And you have yeah. to build it. You know, speaking of that co-founder situation, what advice do you have for other people when they're embarking into a co-founder relationship? Again, this one, a lot of thought too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the quick answer is, I think that the, the obvious thing is align on vision. Um, usually people just interpret that to mean business vision. And I think the big miss was not a lot, not being on the same page with what's your personal vision. Um Right. Because it's one thing if you both think, OK, like the, the play here is to go the software route or whatever the route is. Right. But what do you where do you want to be personally in five years? Where do I want to be personally? Like maybe you want to be retired in five years and I don't. Maybe mm -hmm. I want to be, you know, building a billion dollar company because like being a billionaire is important to me and you're happy with the lifestyle business. So it's one thing to be aligned on like strategy and direction of the company but what are you looking to get out of this on a personal level and does that align and i do think hiring you know executive coaches hiring uh, a relationship coach i think the earlier you do that it's prevent it, it'll prevent issues a lot of what i talk about too with operational efficiency is 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 not just moving faster forward but preventing the issue cuz sometimes Sometimes it's not that hard to move faster forward, but it's those setbacks. It's one person leaving that could set you back six months yeah. or one situation that maybe you could have mitigated if you would have documented it or some some other strategy. So what what could you do right now to mitigate the probability that there is a blow up with a co-founder or with a key team member? And I think a great solution is you hire coaches and consultants to to sometimes it's awkward to bring up you know something that's bothering you the co-founder so having that third party neutral person that can be like what's going on guys like what what has happened right even if they aren't the world's best like even just that uh, is going to be a helpful 
helpful space to hold to facilitate conversation so you don't have things just build up because you don't want there to be build up right? right totally no that is so that's such good advice and i love what you just said because a coach or a therapist or someone they just bring structure to the table like i have this concept of the co-founder prenup where you can actually talk through questions yourself yeah. about your vision for the future and kind of what do you like and how do you handle conflict and what's i mean even to your point earlier what's going to make you a hero with me um you know what's going to really upset me and I think just having tools to talk about that and then totally. practice talking about it over and over, practice talking about it, that's going to help you bring up issues. Yeah. And I mean, like, if you don't go that route and, like, you decide to try to figure it out yourself and you let things bubble up, think about, like, all the waste. Any second that you're spending on that negative energy and negative thinking on something that bothers you. That's a minute or energy that you could be applying to a new strategy or vision to help grow the business totally. and add bottom line value. Right. So, you know, when, when, when I, looking back, I wish I would have hired a coach to help us navigate things earlier on. I don't know if ultimately it would have, I think that we just weren't meant to be co-founders right. because of the difference of personal vision. But I think that it wouldn't have, ended probably the way that it did. Right, so It would have been a, so a softer landing. Yeah. And, um, you know, the amount of energy and wasted, um, like, negative thoughts and wasted energy that could have been applied to better things, man, like, it was probably millions of dollars worth of, you know, just wasted energy that was applied to the wrong place that I wish I would have hired, uh, you know, a third party to come and help us navigate it. Yeah, I hear you. Yeah. How has your leadership style changed or what have you learned as a leader and how have you grown as a leader in this period, in this journey of yours? Um, one, I think that I realize I, I don't like, I'm not a good, I don't think I'm a great manager, but I do think I'm a good leader. I think that it depends. I think that my leadership style is a function of the team. And I think as we've matured as a company, the team has gotten stronger and that's affected my leadership style. Yeah. Right. So I don't, I think that leadership style, at least for me has been dynamic. Cause like if I'm with a more junior team, I'll feel like I need to micromanage more and I will get in and I could come off as a mic, more of a micromanager leader. If I'm with more of a senior team that I, that I trust, I take a step a more of a step back. So I think that leadership style one, I think you grow and you learn from mistakes and, I, one thing I've focused a lot on is communication skills. I think that that was a, as a high frequency trader, there's a lot of, you know, I was really good at math and coding, but like we weren't taking like courses on communication skills. So, right. Um, or interpersonal think, skills. You know, I think that I've appreciated more of the soft skills that I never really appreciated through grad school and through my pre my past um, working, working life. So the soft skills, um, what was the question? How's my leadership style? Changed and how have you grown? Yeah, I think an appreciation for the soft skills. Um, figuring out like what, how to have a successful relationship, working relationship to get the most, to get the, the most out of people, but not the most in terms of like, I want them to kill themselves and, and, and work, but like I want them to, to be able to work on things that give them joy and tap into their unique ability. And so I think I've just gotten more clear on, you know, how to, how to put together a team and, and be a team lead. That's great. I love that. Just a couple more questions. What do you wish you had known earlier on your journey? <laughs> how hard it was going to be. <laughs> um, how, what do I wish I would have known? 
let me just think for a second. Well, I think that one thing that, all right, this is probably the, the, the number one. There's probably a thousand. I think that, and I'm big into acronyms because I think it's easier to remember. So I got CPR. Don't forget that one. Right. Communicate, plan, resource. The core of my new book, come up for air.com. Now, <laughs> <laughs> another acronym, ACR, Attraction, Conversion, Retention. Um, I think that most companies, and I fell into this trap, make the mistake of going left to right. You know, attraction is what I call marketing. Like, how can you grow your list, the followers, all of these things? That's fun. That's sexy. Um, but what's the point of attracting new people if you can't convert, which is the C, right? So you could get all these leads in, but if you have a broken sales sales uh, funnel or sale conversion, what's the point? And what's the point of converting if you can't retain? So that's the R, right? So you could be the best at conversion, but if you're not able to retain clients, which was my problem early on, right? right? Like we were attracting and converting at 20%. We, weren't, we, we had a really bad retention, right? We were losing 15% every month. So it's kind of like you have a broken sink with water overflowing and you're just mopping faster versus trying to figure out where the hole is and patch the sink. So actually the right way to go is from right to left. Focus on retention, get your quality of service or product as good as possible. Then focus on conversion, right? Then focus on attraction. Now you have to, you, you can't just be that siloed in black and white. You have to be looking at everything. But one thing I really learned, Alyssa, was I should be putting most of my effort on retention, hmm. which forces me to really get clear on what what's product market fit, right? Uh, before really investing money. So I over-invested in a lot of areas in the business prior to my product market fit and getting that retention. Right now, our retention's super high. We're expanding clients. They want to stay for way longer. The lifetime value of a client's way longer. So that's one thing. I think another thing is know your numbers. Know the lifetime value of a client. Try to figure out strategies to expand that, right? So there's many ways. There's probably, it could be additional products that you could expand them in. There could be a million ways you can increase your gross profit margin. Um, but know the lifetime value, know your cost of acquiring a customer, and know the ratio between those two. The LTV to CAC is a really critical number that really helps to navigate, you know, should you be putting your foot on or off the gas? I feel like what you're saying is that you wish you had known more about your bit, like know your business, Don't like know your business. Know the and business. And in the early days, you didn't know your business. Yeah, well, we were still figuring out. I think any startup, it, yeah. it's, you know, it takes time to figure out, like, it's very rare that, like, you just come up with an idea and, like, in five years, that's the exact idea. At least for me, it's wildly different. It took right. a long time. And it was really expensive to figure that out. I wish I would have invested more on on that side of things. Another mistake, too, is it's there's so many opportunities it's you you i fell into this trap of saying yes to too many things and before you know it every yes it's like when we talked about adding more people it's exponentially more complicated every product or service you offer is exponentially more complicated every um you know, oh, well, this person wants to do this. Let's make an exception. Every exception is complexity. If you make, 
you know, one in itself is not going to probably break you, but you know, you, you have dozens or hundreds of exception cases. Like now you got to manage all that. So I would have said no to way more things, gotten way more hyper-focused and, um, try to just keep it as simple as possible. Um, as long as possible. As long as possible. I love it. We got too complicated too fast. Last question, Nick, what advice do you have for other founders as they embark on their journey to grow into leaders? For what stage kind of person are we talking? Any, any stage. Um, I would say, I would say like always, always have a growth mindset. Um, always, always try to be learning and growing. Try to, try to hire as a last resort. So, so you don't have to be leading as many people. That's probably the easiest way to, to, to solve that problem. Um, and try to be as replaceable as possible and constantly trying to, I mean, look, as a, as a leader, especially if you're the CEO, your job is to create the vision and finance the vision. But besides that, I think the third most important is make sure that you have a team of people that is doing work that can be the best work of their life that gives them joy or taps into their unique ability and try to remove any barrier that's preventing them from achieving that. And that would be kind of the third the third most important thing as a leader to think about. Amazing. I love it. The book is Come Up For Air. Comeupforair.com. Yep. Everyone should get We've it. We've got a bunch. The book is 320 pages and HarperCollins wouldn't let me go really any longer. So we had to. <laughs> Compact. It's, it's, it's packed with information. So the website, comeupforair.com, has all this uh, supplemental and bonus content that didn't make it into the book to help guide your team through this journey. Amazing. Thanks for being here today, Nick. It was such a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to From Startup to Grown Up. If you like what you heard, give it a review on Apple Podcasts so other people can find it. And if you know of a founder or someone else who is meant to be on this podcast, drop me a line through my website, alyssacone.com.